to the Corin Barraclub show. Coming up, I'll be talking to Deepika Bardwa, an independent journalist and documentary filmmaker from India. Her first film, Martyrs of Marriage, looked at the misuse of IPC 498A, or the anti-dowry law in India. She's now working on her next film, India's Sons. First, I want to start this week by saying I've been swamped with messages about this New South Wales coercive control bill. This is the dangerous bill that's coming from Labour. I've had so many messages and there's one thing that they all have in common, fear. This bill is really, really sinister for men and women. Let me share this one letter that I've had from a lady in New South Wales. Dear Corinne, I'm hoping you can shine light on this proposed dangerous amendment. We, that's her and her male partner, are often branded as coercive and controlling because we ask his ex-wife to pack the kids' school shoes. If we ask more than once, does that constitute a pattern? Could we go to jail for five years now? It's very worrying that it doesn't require the victim to have proof. That's not what our legal system was designed for, is it? It's such a subjective issue, and for that reason, it has so much potential for abuse, as we see daily in family court when perjury for lying was taken away. The smallest of issues are taken as fact, with no proof, and lets the accuser paint the other as controlling and abusive. My partner has repeatedly been called coercive and controlling. The term is thrown around like candy during family law matters. It's not that I don't believe or understand that there are genuine victims of domestic violence in all its forms, but what is controlling to one person may not actually be controlling behaviour. It's the term all lawyers use to shut the other party up and gain advantage. Simple requests could now be criminalised. So many really important points in here, and she's right. Controlling is a subjective issue. This potential new legislation could see innocent people criminalised. The simple fact is that breakups can be incredibly messy. Many ex-partners, male and female, look for advantages to play. To deny this is ludicrous. Denying the plain fact that some women seek to play the system is futile. And in the same way as denying that some women use false allegations and lawfare for revenge. And on that note, let's go into this week's interview. Great. So I'm really looking forward to my guest today, Deepika Bardwa, who's a filmmaker from India, and she calls herself an equal rights activist, which is exactly what I call myself too. So we've got lots to talk about. Let me bring her in. I believe she's there. Hi. Hi, Corinne. How are you? Very well. How are you doing? Absolutely good. Great today. Good. I'm glad to hear it. Let me get uh, stuck in. So let me just start by saying around the world i would say that we're seeing um an angry left of politics fathers struggling to get access to their children a rise in parental alienation i'm interested to know what the situation is like in india uh it, it's not very different corinne um my work essentially all the revolves around false accusations in men and through my documentaries i've tried to bring these stories out uh, as uh, as far as parental alienation or you know denial of father's rights is concerned, it's very prevalent in India. Uh, in divorce and custody battles, you would often see that the uh, visitation rights are often given to the um, uh, sorry visitation rights or uh, are often denied to the fathers and uh, custody custodial uh, orders are primarily given to the mothers. 
uh, we have had cases where uh, the custody was with father but then the court gave it away to the mother and then the child was killed by the mother along with her lover so yeah we have had uh, you know couple of instances as extreme as that and um, uh, but but uh, the fact is that majority of the fathers in india when they are in custody or divorce battles uh, do not usually get uh, as much time as they should with their kids uh, just to give you an example during the corona time uh, i received innumerable queries from father who were just trying to see their kids for even 2 minutes so for months uh, they couldn't uh, uh, actually uh, even have a glimpse of their child because the courts were closed and even though they had the visitation rights the mother would just not bring the kid on the camera and uh, recently a friend of mine it was so bizarre uh, he went for visitation right to the court eventually when the online hearing started and he was given just half an hour in a week uh, on video call uh, and he was so heartbroken he had not seen his child for such a long time uh, so this is this is very uh, prevalent in india and one um really strong um uh, deposition that i want to make today is um uh, the cases of nri fathers uh, where um, the father is abroad uh, the mother is in india and um, the mother brings the child here um, and the fathers over there are completely left high and dry they do not have any visitation they do not have any access to their kids and since india is not a signatory to the hague convention it becomes really really tough for these parents to actually have uh, any kind of connect with their kids and there are innumerable cases like that again um, there are cases where mothers are also there whose uh, husbands have you know brought the kid back to india and they do not have any access to their child uh, but they're much much lesser than uh, the cases where it's the father who has lost the access to the kid Mm-hmm. Can you tell me have there been any shocking news stories recently that have stuck in your mind? Sorry? Have there been any shocking news stories recently that have stuck in your mind? Uh in 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 terms of parental uh, any any violation? Yeah, uh, Corinne, uh, one of the stories that in fact I documented in my film Martyrs of Marriage which is on abuse of dowry and domestic violence laws. uh the story the documentary actually begins with the case of a man called sayed ahmed magdoom uh he was a resident of bangalore and uh, he had worked for several years in canada and then he came to india and got married to a woman who um, was uh, married multiple times earlier but she didn't disclose this fact to him but eventually when he got to know he uh, the woman was already pregnant uh so sayed uh, was magdoom was sort of you know looking forward to just spending his life with his son and he was so extremely attached to the kid when the kid was born and it was around 2 years or so and the couple did not get along together because of course it was the basis on of the relationship was a fraudulent uh, uh, um in beginning uh, so uh, she she went back she took the son along with her and magdoom tried so hard to you know get custody of the child or visitation access of the child and she would deny seeing uh, uh, make she would deny the kids being seen by the father uh, he would take so many gifts go to the court and uh, you know expect to see his child but 
uh, unfortunately it became more and more difficult for him to have any access to his kid and uh, though th this story is really old uh, it, it happened in way back in 2009 uh, but still it 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 it, it is uh, very shocking he left a 7 minute suicide video uh, before hanging himself oh. and um, he he wrote how he was uh, denied um, visitation and denied love of his child who he loved so much and that he wasn't able to take this pressure any longer and he hanged himself and used to write blogs for his son i hope someday that boy actually gets to see those blogs uh, but he used to write how he's suffering without seeing him and how he adores him and how he wants him to know that he's not an irresponsible father and uh, you know there was times uh, when he actually got to see his son his son uh, you know a visitation of few hours and uh, when the son came home he was you know um, asking where is the ghost where is the ghost and the, and magdum said you know there's no ghost here uh, and the kid said you know mama says that there's a ghost that lives here you know so uh, it's it's very heartbreaking this case is always the always uh, you know stuck to my memory but this is not the only case the another one shocking was which where i told you uh, that the this was a special child you know he was not a normal child he was a special child and uh, the father was taking really really good care of the child but the mother in order to get the uh, maintenance money you know mm -hmm. filed for custody of the son and uh, the court actually granted it and uh, she had the custody of the son and it was not like a very small child it was 11 12 year old child but it was a special child that was it there's an incident from pune and this woman actually uh, beat up the kid so bad with a bat um, uh, and she was staying with her living partner that the kid died and then she tried hiding it by saying uh, that the kid died by falling off in the bathroom or something but the post mortem re revealed that his ribs were broken and he had a really really severe injury and um, I, I don't know if the judge is not responsible for the for the death in this case but in india sadly kareen these stories just not even remain in news for half a day so yeah it's, yeah, it's the same here. Tell me, you describe yourself as an equal rights activist. That's what I actually call myself. So what, why, why did you arrive at that term and why is that wording important to you? Uh, Kareen, um, I call myself an equals, equal rights activist. To be very honest, it's a very interesting question because I've always been very, you know indecisive and sort of confused in what exactly do i want to call myself while doing this work honestly a label does not make any difference uh, i my work essentially revolves around fighting for injustices against men so if somebody wants to call me a men's right activist so be it if somebody wants to call me an equal rights activist so be it uh, I know that I'm standing for the truth and in cases where it's the men who are on the receiving end of injustice. Uh, I started calling myself a men's right activist and then I realized that it, this tag probably is causing harm uh, to the work that I do because as soon as this label goes out along with me, people have preconceived notions about me 
and would I want to risk that uh, in, in you know in perspective of they not even listening to me? And if that's the case, then I may not as well call myself a men's right activist because I want people to listen to me because what I have to say is really really important. Uh, and then um, for some time I stopped calling myself a men's right activist. Um, but then off late, uh, I, I realized that, you know, just because people have preconceived notions and uh, people have stereotypical attitude towards a certain label, should I stop using it when I am that? So, yeah, now it's like men's right activist, equal rights activist. The idea is that the kind of protection that, that our legal uh, uh, provisions provide to a woman I believe the same kind of protection and assistance and empathy uh, and uh, hearing should be provided to men as well. Uh, very, very similar to me, Deepika. You know, I, I often talk about equality of compassion because that seems to be lost in all of these conversations, um, which actually leads me on quite nicely to let me talk about, or let's talk about your upcoming documentary so India's Sons I believe is the topic I did watch the um, the trailer of the documentary uh, false rape accusations in India I believe is a really burning issue isn't it false rape accusations is right now quite um, uh, quite an issue in India of course men's issues are never an issue for anybody but uh, considering the space that I work in uh, right now one, one thing that's really really haunting me is uh, the frivolousness with uh, with which uh, false rape accusations are being leveled here in India. Uh, I have uh, I have uh, sort of tracked international developments also on this issue. Uh, we do hear about false rape accusations uh, in in various countries, uh, but the extent to which it is happening in India is nightmarish. Uh, you would be really surprised to know that there are rackets running right now uh, so in 2012 let me give you a background in 2012 the horrific uh, delhi gang rape happened uh, it it was an international news i think everybody knows about this episode in india where there was a ghastly um, gang rape of a young medico in delhi and uh, she was she was assaulted really really bad uh, and she eventually died and that led to huge protests in india and our laws were completely overhauled. Um, the definition was changed. Now uh, it's not just penile uh, uh, intercourse, it's insertion of any object, and that object uh, could be anything in any orifices of a woman accounts to rape. Uh, there's no need, essential need of medical corroboration. Uh, there's no essential need of any circumstantial evidence. Uh, the statement of a woman now in India is enough to convict a man of rape. And uh, she, if she wants, she can deny medical intervention. Uh, there are charges that have come up uh, in, in India now uh, in, for criminal trial which date back to 33 years, uh, 23 years, 19 years, and, the, um, and, and, and a very, very um, disturbing trend that is now happening in India is where there's a relationship between a man and a woman. And uh, if they break up, the woman can actually go to the authorities and say that he promised me marriage. He didn't honor that promise of marriage and hence it becomes rape on false promise of marriage you would be surprised 
yeah, you would be surprised to know that over uh, out of the total number of rape cases, and there are about 33,000 to 34,000 reported rape cases in India every year, approximately 30% or 35% and now it's, it's closing to 40% account where the woman claims that she was induced into a sexual relationship on promise of a marriage which was not honored by the man later and hence he is tried for rape charges of course uh, eventually he most likely would get acquitted uh, because this here is an, is an adult woman she's not a minor she had the uh, choice to make whether she wants to have sex even if there was a promise made or not, uh, uh, and, and, and if she decided to do so, it was her decision. But eventually, the procedure, the man gets booked, then he gets arrested, then there are months of jail, and then eventually he's heard. Um, so he actually is tried as a rapist, um, and then the courts decide whether he did rape or not rape. Uh, strangely enough, we have diversified and absolutely confusing judgments from various high courts in India and the Supreme Court of India. Now, since the number of these cases have risen so much, uh, the Supreme Court, of course, has, uh, uh, you know, um, handled some of these cases in the appeals. And now the Supreme Court eventually seems to have uh, uh, an acceptance that, you know, if the promise was made, and uh, if there was an intention to marry, but because of certain circumstances, uh, whether a caste difference, because all of these things do come in play in India, but if there was a caste difference or if there was a financial status difference or if there was a religion difference or because of X, Y and Z reason, the man could not marry because of specific reasons and very strong reason, then he will not be called a rapist. But if he intended to uh, if he did not intend to marry her from the very beginning and the inducement was a, um, you know a lie or a deceit then he becomes a rapist so you the courts are now going to be judging the intention of a man and i really am clueless on how a, how per, intentions of a person can be assessed especially when the relationship spans for one year, two years, three years, four years. There have been live-in relationships for seven years after which the woman has gone and said that she was being sexually exploited on the promise of marriage for the last six years and seven years. So um, there's a lot of, uh, of course, uh, discussion that which is going on on these particular cases in India right now. But the fact remains that the cases uh, continue to get registered uh, under these clauses, uh, under this section. And uh, there are thousands and thousands of men who are now being tried uh, for rape after broken relationships. And India's sons document uh, not just these kind of cases, but uh, absolutely... Uh, false rape accusations uh, on, on men which were filed either for vendetta or to settle scores or for extortion and very surprisingly and I'll summarize it here uh, there are now rackets running in India where uh, the police officials are involved, the lawyers are involved and they sort of form a, a, a gang and they trap really rich men and then they a woman would have consensual sex with them and then she would tell the man that I'm going to sue you for rape. Uh, 
you pay me either this amount or I'm going to get you booked for it. And uh, one of the cases that I discuss in my documentary is where a gang like this actually trapped 33 men and uh, was able to extort close to uh, 20, 20, uh, above of 20 crores. Uh, now, I, I'm a little bad at maths and conversions, but that's millions and millions of dollars. I'll work it out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And tell me, is there is there um any pushback about what's going on here? Is there any sense that men are are being falsely accused or falsely tried or put through, you know, the the effect on mental health must be absolutely massive. Is there a growing sentiment that women need to be held accountable for this kind of behavior? Well, Corinne, I have been in this space for the last eight years and honestly my uh my observation of the last eight years is that uh, there is a lot more discussion. Um, mm -hmm. There is a lot more anger as well. And yes. there is little bit of sensitivity in the, uh, in, in the court and in the police system as well. I wouldn't say it's a major, major transformation or it's a very acceptable change. Uh, it's minuscule, if I may say. But more than the uh, any changes in the system, what I see happening is a change in the thought process of society as a whole. Now, when you see, uh, you know, social media posts where it's it's uh, an, an episode where the man was, you know, uh, tortured or uh, crucified or falsely accused by a woman, and there's a female perpetrator, I see a lot of comments, and these are comments. Of course, I have I have a decent enough following. I'm I'm uh, close. I'm followed on various social media platforms um, by uh, approximately two hundred thousand people now, and uh, um, all I most of my followers, of course, have a keen interest in what's happening uh, to men and men's issues and men's rights, and they're concerned about what's happening to men, but. Uh, I see comments and I see observations made by general public who's nowhere associated to me, who doesn't know at all about my work, who probably don't even know the idea of men's rights, writing the language that is absolutely signatory that something wrong is happening to men and we really need to do something about it. And that makes me happy because, uh, you know, if, if and when we come to a stage where our lawmakers are able to you know, take note of this thing and probably decide to work towards the change and, you know, will ask for public opinion on it, then I think we have, we would have much, much larger people talking um, about these changes and accepting these changes and asking for these changes as compared to what it was a couple of years ago. And, and, and also a, a lot, uh, a lot of thanks to social media because it, it helps us, it helps people like me who are consistently working on these issues and bringing these stories out to spread these stories because the mainstream media usually, you know, does not bring these stories out uh, uh, to in front of people. So thanks yeah. to social media, we have I have personally have been able to take my stories to uh, take the uh, cases that I investigate and I bring out. And some of these cases have actually gone viral and I think have played a very, very important role and people understanding the harm of false accusations or the wrongs being done to men, and they understand and realize that, you know, this is these these are human rights violations, and this is unacceptable. 
Yes. So we have here a very fierce, I would say, far left, very vocal feminist pack. Do you have something similar there? Oh, of course, yes. Yeah. Um, what are they pushing for? Sorry? What, do they, what are they pushing for? What do they want? Well, uh, they, first of all, are pushing back the any voices that people raise for men by discarding them as, you know, anecdotal evidences of uh, wrongs on men when it is not anecdotal. Uh, it is, it is uh, quite a serious issue and uh, the number of victims are not less or anecdotal. Um, second is there's, uh, there's a huge intervention of these groups in the system, in the judicial process in the lawmaking process where they're actively pushing for more and more and more and more laws uh, that will come in aid of women. And uh, of course, any, any, any laws they push for do not ever consider women as, uh, sorry, men as victims. Um, uh, a major discussion that's happening right now in India and uh, uh, a law that uh, feminists and the left groups are constantly pushing through is marital rape and uh, with the kind of uh, developments that we are already seeing under the rape laws uh, where without any corroboration without any evidence whatsoever men are booked on rape charges uh, we are absolutely skeptical if uh, that law comes into the force then uh, probably every matrimonial dispute will end up into a rape charge on the man because what we are seeing right now a lot is uh, that in matrimonial disputes there are rape allegations put on the male family members of the husband so if marital rape law comes then i i i, I don't know how how at all a husband and his family would be able to uh, save themselves um, like I said, uh, there's a lot of backlash from these groups to the men's rights activists and uh, my documentary Martyrs of Marriage, when it was um, sort of be accepted by, uh, when it was to be released on Netflix platform, uh, these groups basically criticized Netflix, wrote to them, asked them to bring it down. There were change.org petitions started uh, to down the documentary. Uh, and any any time you know some stories like these come up or some uh, a platform is given to people like us there's quite a backlash uh but i said this in australia during icmi as well and i would repeat that again um if i compare my work and if i compare the acceptance of my work and uh, you know um backlash or pushback here in India, it's much less than what you guys have to go through, actually, to be very honest. And uh, the simple reason I think for that is that the feminist movement um, in, in West um, started way, way, way earlier than it, you know, sort of came in India and the radical feminists uh, uh, in, in West, radical feminism uh, in West, if I may say, uh, as a cult is a much, much, much more acceptable than it is in India. People in India right now are quite pissed off with radical feminists and uh, they fight <laughs> the time. I, it's not even the men's right activists. 
normal people it's normal in a lot of women as well you know it's it's quite yeah. encouraging that a lot of women are actually you know take out take these radical feminists on and teach them a lesson on social media engagements and it's quite heartwarming to see actually these women really actually yeah, yeah being able to call uh, the wrong from the right and 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 they are they're not brainwashed but of course the brainwashed lot is also quite there and uh, they do dominate the social media space uh, but it's they are called out yes it's interesting though deeply listening to you talk there about netflix because it's the tactics that the left employ are clearly really similar all around the world you know we we would have a similar thing here we have yeah. a pack of far left activists who actively try to boycott things um, and pressure people who are advertising on various platforms to withdraw that funding it's the same tactics that you're talking about yeah absolutely It's, yeah. it's uh, I, I remember speaking with Cassie and she told me uh, that Cassie J uh, directed yeah, the she told me uh, even though Red Pill had a brilliant run on um, every every platform that it eventually uh, got released on the, uh, somehow it didn't make it to Netflix and I think that's got to do a lot with the left uh, groups you know uh, Uh, yeah. raising extreme voices against the documentary i i wish it would have come it would have been great if it was on netflix uh i was honestly very surprised when netflix actually gave a go to martyrs of marriage uh because i pres- i had thought that they may not allow a documentary like that on their platform because it talks about men and their sufferings but uh i think they saw it that it's not just a men's issue particularly uh, you know 498 abuse in india because it has huge number of women who are family members of the men also who are victimized in these cases uh, exactly. but thankfully it, yeah. it did make it to the platform it, and it had a good two year run um, people from across the world wrote to me and from india wrote to me on how they were extremely moved by the documentary i get messages till date now the documentary is on youtube uh, and there are thousands of people who have watched the documentary on youtube as well now and i keep and on getting then- When will um, India's Sons be out? I can't wait to see it. I've obviously been yeah, great. Uh, we we were we were scheduled to release it uh, uh, by May, uh, but because of Corona, our work stopped mm-hmm. because it was India was under a complete lockdown yeah. uh, for about two two and a half months, and hence we were not able to work at all. Uh, but now we have resumed the work again. Uh, we are likely to finish it by the end of this year. Brilliant. That's wonderful. Well, I'll have you back on again towards the end of the year. We'll catch up again. <laughs> Thank you yeah. so much for talking to me, Deepika. I'll talk, I'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much, Corinne. Pleasure to have okay. you <laughs> to be there on the show and good luck for you. Thanks for doing this. I'll catch up with Deepika again soon to check in on the progress of her film India's Sons. Now, a couple of news stories I want to shine a light on. Look at this story in the Canberra Times which reports that 40 shelters for women and children escaping domestic violence are being built across the country. 700 beds are expected to accommodate around 6000 people each year. I feel like a broken record picking at this narrative around domestic violence, but it's spend like this that underlines why it's so important. Domestic violence is not a gendered issue. It seems to me that there's a real disconnect here between politicians, government-funded organizations and us, the general public. We all know that violence is not a gender issue. We all know 
that it's not appropriate only to pour funding into the feminist narrative that insists that men are perpetrators and women are innocent victims. When will politicians catch up? It's time they had better advisors in their ear, I reckon, rather than these gender-biased misandrists who are out of step with public opinion. The Commonwealth Government will contribute $60 million towards these projects. The money is there. The money is being poured into a gendered narrative. One day, soon, that will change. We must keep pushing for that. Several people contacted me to flag this news story about a rape jury that can't hear a false sex assault history. The Australian reports that the New South Wales government is facing fresh calls to amend a law which has repeatedly criticised as unfair. After the High Court ruled, a man accused of rape would have to face trial without being able to tell the jury of the complainant's history of false sexual assault complaints. Remember, of course, that the narrative coming from the left-wing media is that women don't make false claims or that they're incredibly rare. I'll tell you what's more outrageous than attempting to insist that women don't lie, just as men can lie, and it's this. A New South Wales law that prohibits any evidence of prior false sexual assault complaints by victims. The High Court has said that the man can come back after he's convicted, meaning that this man has to go through a whole trial while this surely critical evidence is not presented. His lawyers have argued that their clients should not have to face a what they call a charade trial in, what, in which he's forced to stay mute on the most critical ele element of his defence. This is plain wrong. The distress, the humiliation, the embarrassment, surely this is a waste of time and a ridiculous law that must be challenged. Now, look at this story from South Australia. A judge has been urged to show as much leniency as possible to a South Australian woman who ran down her partner and killed him after a long history of domestic violence. Reporting around this is a real mess. It says that the woman, Nolene Kenny, admitted the manslaughter of Edward John Baker, but prosecutors say she did not intend to kill the man or cause grievous bodily harm. The defence says that the relationship between the pair had long been marked by incidents of violence. Can we just be really clear here, and I'll be careful with my words. Whatever the background to that relationship, this woman's actions resulted in taking a human life. She used a car as a weapon, but that doesn't make it more acceptable than if she used any other weapon. It's not more okay to run someone over than to stab them. It's not more okay to kill someone who was violent. Sorry, but violence is never acceptable. And on that note, can I just take a minute to say how disgusting it is that some ABC presenters are trying to get that episode of Q&A, the one that condoned violence, reinstated online. You know the one where a panel of angry extremist feminists condone violence? Remember the one where Egyptian US journalist Mona El-Tahawi asked, how many rapists must we kill until men stop raping us? She speaks about using justifiable violence against men under the mythical righteous challenge of dismantling the patriarchy. In 2012, she confessed that she beat up a man who tried to grope her in a nightclub. She's an extremist. She should never, ever have been given a platform on our national broadcaster. How have we ended up here? Why is this being allowed to continue? Ita Buttrose swiftly stepped in at the time to remove the episode from iView. 
now that media regulator ACMA has found that the episode did not breach any ABC standards, there's a push to have the episode reinstated. There is nothing more than, a, this is nothing more than a push by presenters who like taxpayer funds flowing into their bank account, but they do not like being told that they're out of line. One more time, violence is never acceptable despite your cause. Equality will certainly never be achieved by beating people up. ACMA may have cleared the episode, but the Australian mainstream public have not. This is blatant misandry and it's not acceptable. It's not acceptable on our screens, it's not acceptable from our national broadcaster, and it's not acceptable in our family courts. Isn't it time we actually recognised misandry as being equally as wrong as misogyny? At the next election, can we please start paying more attention to the man-haters among us? Right, that's enough Barraclough now. See you next week. The Corin Barraclough Show is a production of The Good Source, hosted by Corin Barraclough. To watch, listen to or read more new media without the social justice warrior narratives or politically correct fact filter, visit goodsource.news. That's good, S-A-U-C-E dot news. Become a Good Source supporter for exclusive access to live and unedited interview recordings, including the conversations before and after the show. 